Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the offices of JMK. Yes. But what does that mean? Uh, journalism, Media and Communication. Right. Communication with a K. With a K. That's the right way to do it. Yes. Uh, of Stockholm <laughs> University, and I'm with my friend Christian Christensen, who will now correct my pronunciation. No, that's right. That's, correct. That, that's not too bad. No, okay. That's fine. Uh, and we're going to talk about his life, work, loves, frustrations, and excitement. Jesus. How long do we have? <laughs> well, as I walk in, as I sit here now, I see at least two pictures of Rick Astley yes. on computers. So yes. I think that, that pretty much sums up the love life part, right? Yes. Without Non-existing? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> oh, okay. Like 80s. Ah. I <laughs> no, that was my love life. <laughs> forgetting. Um, but in all seriousness, it's mm. great to be here. And tell us what you're, what you're up to. Well, yeah, I'll mention what you, maybe you're not supposed to mention, but I'll mention it anyway. I uh, just had a book that came out uh, on WikiLeaks to which uh, you contributed a chapter. That's one thing that's going on. Uh, that's part of a long line of stuff that I've been writing about. I think I've this year it's going to be four or five articles that I'm going to write about WikiLeaks in different, in different ways, talking about media reform. There's a book that Des Freeman and Robert McChesney and a few other people are bringing out next year. And we're talking about WikiLeaks in relationship to reform of the media. I've talked about it in relationship to journalism and the collateral murder video, which is one of my pieces in the, in the book. And then I'm part of a few other projects, externally financed projects, that have to do with the use of social media during election campaigns and also the use of ICTs in conflict situations. ICTs, information and yeah, communication, communication technologies. technologies yes. Right. So I've got these project things, but then I have the sort of my side interests, we put it that way. I mean, there's some stuff that I get financed to do, which is really interesting. And then there's things you have that, you know, one of the things we're fortunate to have here in Sweden is that, you know, senior faculty get research time as part of their job. I mean, you know, it's rare if you talk to American scholars, it's really hard to find time to write and do things. One of the luxuries we have in Sweden is that it is actually part of our, if you're a professor, you actually get it as a percentage of your time is to do research, regardless of whether you have external funding or not. And that's not the same in every university. So it gives you time to do a few other things on the side that you might not have financing for. And, you know, WikiLeaks is one thing that I've done. And that's basically rooted in a lot of the work that I did a few years ago looking at the United States military's use of things like YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, music videos that came out from them or people sitting around doing nothing or being drunk all the way up to you know typical very extremely violent illegal activity mm -hmm. so this is sort of an expansion of some work that I've been interested in looking at the connections to the military and then I think that you know when we go back the work I did when I first got my dissertation I was looking at public broadcasting in Sweden I mean it seems like a long way away but actually the root always comes seems to come back to journalism in a lot of ways. The stuff on WikiLeaks, the stuff on YouTube, mm -hmm. journalism is always at the core of a lot of the stuff that I do, even so if it's indirect. That's an interesting point. Mm -hmm. um, I can't keep my eyes off Rick. He's, no, Rick's a good looking guy. He's, he's, he's got me. His hair that, is fantastic. I know, and those glasses, the yeah. sunglasses. But um, could you define journalism for us? <laughs> and could you tell us whether it's different from how you would have defined it when you came for your job? Yeah, interview? well, I mean, obviously, you know, when I, well, my job interview, when I, when I got my PhD in 2001, right, we're talking about a very different environment here. So, I mean, I've, what's interesting is as a student at the University of Texas, I did my PhD in Austin. I mean, we, you know, we didn't have that discussion about what journalism was then. I mean, it was pretty much taken for granted. It was very much rooted in 
and taking part in, in sort of classical structures and, you know, having education and those kinds of very sort of technical questions. Now, of course, we're in a much different area where this discussion about the relationship between technology and defining journalism. And, I mean, if you look at WikiLeaks as a very good example of that, the, there's different levels at which we talk about what journalism is. Now, is, is Assange and our WikiLeaks a journalistic organization? Do they deserve protection under the law as a journalistic organization? Is Assange a journalist? Here in Sweden, you know, their servers were located here for quite some time. And uh, in Sweden, uh, he was supposedly described as a journalist, and WikiLeaks was a journalistic organization. But in Sweden, to be classified as a journalistic organization, you have to have something called a ansvarjudgivare, which means there has to be one person responsible for all the material that's released. So, it is so, yeah, right. so if there's a legal case, there is one person who will yeah. say, you are the person, and yeah. they did not have one. So actually, there's a sort of discussion, are they technically journalists or not? And I think this discussion about what is journalism, I think what obviously what we've come to, we've come away from the technical definitions that we used to have when I was a graduate student. And now we're having more discussion about the, it's the more philosophical discussion about what journalism is. Now, if you ask the question, are WikiLeaks journalists? <laughs> uh, they're not journalists in the sense that I would have defined it as a student in the 1990s and the 1980s. But I think that there's an argument to be made that they are part of the journalistic process now. Uh, they, they are purveyors of information. They are middle people. And so in that sense, I don't think they can be divorced. So there's a new gatekeeping function. Yes. There's a new in gatekeeping function. In a certain function. sense, except what they would certainly claim is that they're gate openers yes. rather than keepers. But there is a new function in an era when we're told mm -hmm. that cultural gatekeeping is dying off. No, I mean, and it's a very, I mean, that's a very interesting discussion because if you look at what happened when the big release, and I mean, I'm not using WikiLeaks because I'm just obsessed with talking about them, but they're a good example of these questions about what journalism is. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you've got, if you look at what happened with the New York Times and when they released the information that came from Manning, one of the things that happened was the Bradley, Bradley now, Manning, Chel now Chelsea Manning, yeah, yeah. The, the, the leak of the material, <laughs> the White House, the Obama administration went to the New York Times and, and asked them, asked them, can you please ask WikiLeaks to cut back on the release of information, which is an interesting development that the New York Times, which is supposedly the watchdog, the classical watchdog, has now become the go-between the go between the supplier of information and the power, right, the political power. So yeah, I mean, and of course WikiLeaks itself and, and groups like Anonymous, you know, they're collecting information and now you have open leaks and global leaks of these different, you know, we have the whole thing with Snowden and the NSA and Greenwald and First Look Media. Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald. Who, who possess a great deal of information and that's become a key debate here. Like what, what responsibilities do the people who have the information, what do they have to A, journalism and B, the public? And of course, one of the things about journalists is that they define themselves as professionals, yes. which is a class distinction. Yes. When we were at, well, not, you were not there, but mm -hmm. when I was at a meeting in Sweden last week about the life of academics, mm -hmm. it was really about publishing in the public knowledge or something, yes. public knowledge. But it turned into a discussion with people from Turkey and New Zealand, Aotearoa, and Sweden, mm -hmm. talking about, and Britain, talking about academic freedom in a way, mm -hmm. and how it is being limited by the governmentalization of everyday scholarly life, yes. right? Uh, in other words, meeting various bureaucratic anal norms, yes. right? And I said, not as a criticism of these <laughs> folks, but, you know, with fellow feeling, this is a class-based 
story because yes. the professions have always said we are responsible for legislating ourselves, right. we're self-regulators, right. and that's the difference between us and you know carpenters and plumbers right. who basically have to be regulated by the state. Right. We'll have none of it. Right. We are you know doctors, dentists, mm -hmm. attorneys, architects, and, blah, 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 mm -hmm. and we license ourselves essentially. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that journalists mm -hmm. claim as part of being a profession. We know how to control ourselves right. Right? in ways that you don't allow when it comes to lots of more proletarian activities. Right. Now, the question is, what is there to govern or self-govern these new cultural intermediaries yes. that are emerging? Yeah, and that's... Um... Well, obviously, at, at the most basic level, what you have is national security. I mean, that's, that's, that's the number one level for WikiLeaks. What governs them is, are they breaking the law? And then that's at the most vulgar, basic level. Yeah. But then, of course, you're getting at a much more fundamental question. Which, and this is something that you know, it splits academics, too, the level mm -hmm. of government intervention in the regulation of yeah. journalism. Mm -hmm. What's ironic, of course, is that academics are so unwilling to recognize their own industry as an industry, quite often, mm -hmm. right? Like, of course, we advocate regulation. I mean, a lot of us within media and communication studies, you know, people who place themselves on the political left would say it's an important role of government to regulate these massive industries. And then when they say, well, would, would you do the same for your industry? Well, absolutely not, because I'm trustworthy. Like you're saying, I can, I don't need to be regulated yeah, in that way. we're professionals. Right. And I mean, so in that way, yeah, of course, it's a very class-based thing. It's, and it's, you know, if you go back to, you know, uh, people like Gear and sociologists who talked about these sort of, you know, boundary maintenances, mm -hmm. you know, and this idea that, professionals, and he was talking about the medical profession, but it's been translated to the media profession, the way in which we set up these walls around ourselves, and mm -hmm. we have these technical rules about who should be in and out. Mm -hmm. And when people transgress those, and when people break the rules, like they plagiarize in journalism, mm -hmm. then we create explanations for them, like in journalism, like Jason Blair at the New York Times when he was... Under pressure. This is an aberration. Or, mm -hmm. you know, Judith Miller... You know, with the New York Times, you know, that's much, an aberration. Much more, much more dangerous. Right, that's an aberration, though, right? That's, that's an imperfect form of journalism. That's not the norm, that's the mm. exception. And I think, yeah, I think absolutely that um, who regulates uh, who regulates organizations like WikiLeaks and whistleblowing organizations? Mm. And I think that that's a, that's a question. Right? Should they be written? And, of course, they're, they're, they come from a primarily from a libertarian perspective saying that they should not be regulated, right. free but flow of information. What should be their capacity for self-regulation? Yes. This is the issue, because after all, they are making an argument that is not that dissimilar to those that journalists and academics mm -hmm. make, namely, leave us alone. Why? Because we are responsible. Mm -hmm. But responsible in what way, and how is it evidenced, and how is it measured? I think that if I understand, if I understand the rationale that they forward on a regular basis, and it is what they are doing is they are releasing information. Mm -hmm. They're not releasing opinion pieces. They're they're mm -hmm. releasing things that the government has collected, information that the government has. So they're not making any kind of subjective judgment. And there's no filtering. On yeah, and what I'm yeah exactly. So it's yeah. not like the New York Times that gets a million documents and six come out in the paper, right? And then you say, well, I mean, where where are the other nine hundred and fifty thousand? What have you mm -hmm. done with those? WikiLeaks says basically. Look, we're, we, they don't dump, and, that's, and this is really where your question comes to. It's not so much what they have, because, I mean, I think their logic is they just have information and they release it. It's the question is what right do they have or do not have to keep information that's, that should maybe be in the public domain. And this is the tension that comes when you have Greenwald and Snowden, this other material, like, sh should this just be released into the public domain? So their argument, I think, is that the journalistic argument about self-regulation is, A, they're not doing it for profit, number one. And so that whole motive of questioning the kind of information they release or why they do it is gone. This I, I'm mm -hmm. assuming their argument. And B, 
that um, they they're just pure information purveyors. Now they're accused of being anti-American, for example. So there's questions raised like, why don't you release more information about Russia and China? Why are you constantly releasing stuff about the United States? This is a classic argument from the U.S. And that sort of begs the question, I mean, does it make it any less important because they don't say anything about Russia? But again, as, as, as power brokers, as an organization that has power, it does raise the question of exactly the one you're raising, which is what, how sh should they self-regulate? Should, should there be a system in place? Or, because it's a fairly small organization. Mm. It really is a very small organization. I mean, there's not many people making this decision. You know? So yeah, it's a valid question. And what holds them to account? Yes. Now, having said all of that, um, you've got a, a, the book there on your desk. That's, well, that's another one. Oh, that's a different that's, one. Yeah, that was one that came out a couple of years ago. Oh, oh, that's right. That's Beyond Wikileaks. Yes, Beyond Wikileaks. So before you got to, after you got to Beyond Wikileaks. <laughs> before Beyond. Right. Yes. The new one. Yes. Uh, tell us a bit about it. Is it a book that is mixed in its attitude and its methods? Is it celebratory? And what's your particular take? Yeah, it's a, this is a collection of essays. So I would not say that this is sort of traditional. I mean, there are some articles and essays in there that fit into the classic academic mold. But I'm the, I'm the editor, and I only wrote, I wrote one, I did one interview, and I wrote the intro, but there's about 17 or 18 chapters in there. You've written one. And so when I, when I edited the book, one of the things I said to the authors was, please don't write it in a classic journal article style, mm -hmm. right? I would rather have thought pieces, you know, not necessarily based on, of course, I want it to be empirically rooted in some way. But really, I was interested in getting people's ideas about what an organization like this means for academia. Like, how do we, mm -hmm. how do we deal with WikiLeaks from a legal perspective, from a data mining perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a political economic perspective, or from a journalistic perspective? And so it's a mix. I mean, you've got a piece there that's critical. We've got people who are, and we've got people really do really good stuff on surveillance, like Mark Andreevich, and we've got, you know, we have Karen Wall Jurgensen who does great stuff on journalism, and Christian Fuchs, a political economist from Westminster. And so there's varying perspectives on this. And of course, one of the problems when you do a book about something that's related to technology is it so quickly goes out of date. <laughs> and so one of the things you have to worry about is, uh, you know, when this comes out, or if somebody reads this in two years, is it going to be completely useless because the arguments are passe? And so one of the things I was interested in was to make sure that what we're talking about is not so much just WikiLeaks, it's a new phenomenon that challenges exactly the kind of thing you mentioned before. Like, what is journalism? And I think one of the interesting questions that an organized organization like this promotes or stimulates is, what is journalism? Or... What, like exactly your question about being held to account. This is we we've never encountered an organization like this that has this volume of information stored up under their control. What does that mean for us? How does researchers how should we deal with that question? Archive, lot you know, library science. I mean, all these kind of questions. Yeah. And so I think that and you know because they're you know five years from now there's gonna be another organization like this that poses similar questions. So the idea behind the essays was really just to get thinking about how we as scholars within this particular field. Uh, deal or think about a new organization, because I mean we tend we tend to think in established paradigms when we look at you know we, we take our pre-established journalistic paradigm and we superimpose it onto it. It doesn't mm -hmm. always work, mm -hmm. and so this that, that was just an attempt to think maybe a little bit differently. Could you tell us a bit about your chapter and mm -hmm. also the interview that you conducted? Yeah, I wrote a chapter about the collateral murder video, which is a video that WikiLeaks released about five years ago, showing the killing of. Uh, a number of civilians in a suburb of Baghdad, including two Reuters uh, photographers. 
and really with voiceover from with voice with voiceover from the U.S. military. So what you see is the sort of grainy aerial footage that we got used to during the, those of us who were old enough the first Gulf War when we started the, the crosshairs and the you know the, the bad lighting and the the figures scurrying along the ground. And WikiLeaks took a film clip, a video clip that was almost an hour long, and they edited it down to about 10, 15 minutes. It got released. It got a, it got a fair amount of press. Um, but like a lot of WikiLeaks material, it didn't really make an impact, I would say. And, and it had an impact in the sense that people saw it, and it had an impact in the sense that people were outraged. But I think it's also an indictment of the United States media that a lot of the material that WikiLeaks came out with was just basically ignored. I mean, not, and this isn't just about the war. This is also about stuff about toxic dumping in the Ivory Coast and climate change arm twisting by the U.S. government. I mean, these all these kinds of things that they've released. It almost never gets out of the media. So my chapter was basically about uh, the ways in which we think about videos like WikiLeaks when they released and how it, they sort of reoccur. They, they're released and they come up again in the same way that images from Vietnam of, of children burned by napalm or uh, the Tiananmen Square tank image. How these sort of pop up and re-pop up over and over again. And my chapter was about that. And then I did an interview with Brigitte Jonsdotter, who's a Icelandic member of parliament, but also a former WikiLeaks volunteer. And in the, in the uh, interview, she talks about her, her work with WikiLeaks in Iceland. She was one of the people that put this video together. Uh, she's been uh, under surveillance by the United States government, who've requested information from her Twitter account and... She's had court cases with them. She didn't travel there for a number of years. She just went there for the first time in quite some time. And she's also one of the initiators of the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, which is a move in Iceland to make Iceland a sort of haven, a transparency haven, and also a freedom of information haven. And so she's an interesting person because she has personal experience of what it means to be at the receiving end of U.S. power, personally. But also she's somebody that has firsthand knowledge of working within the organization, like how it worked, the way they did things. And also the relationship between WikiLeaks and mainstream media. And I, at the end of the piece, that's one of the questions I asked there, is that the problem with organizations like WikiLeaks is, okay, the, relief, the information comes out, and they worked with The Guardian, they worked with The New York Times, but of course, when you do that, you, you wind up filtering your material. And well, they wanted the stuff filtered, yes. because they didn't know yes. what mattered. They didn't have the numbers or the expertise no. to pick out. No. And Assange was interviewed, you know, before the release, I mean... He was actually interviewed a little bit earlier than that, and he said, he said, look, if you dump information all at once, if I dump the whole thing at one time, the value of that information basically goes down to zero, mm. right? I mean, he understands the, 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 the capitalist connections to information. And so by, by, by dripping the information a little bit and by giving them a one-month time frame to release, they had to release it on the same day, of course it had maximum impact. And of course, as a whistleblower, I think, I think that... One of the things I also argue in a couple of other pieces I wrote is, if you're a whistleblower, what is it you want from this act? Mm. You want maximum exposure, and you want minimum personal risk, I would imagine. Those are two things. And so if WikiLeaks just dumps this or releases it to an alternative newspaper that no one reads, then you think to yourself, okay, I've risked my life to release this information. And where is it going? Mm. Well, you, I, mean, I think you want it on the front page of the El Pais, New York Times, and The Guardian. Mm. I mean, and that's and that's sort of... For those of us who are interested in the political economy of media, it's an interesting compromise. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a, you know, you, you made a deal with the devil in a way, if, if you want to think about it in those terms. Mm -hmm. That in order to maximize your exposure, you had to cut a deal like this. But of course, it undermines other arguments that they make. And then that's part of the, that's part of why WikiLeaks is such an interesting subject. 
regardless of what you think about it, mm. it poses so many interesting questions. And mm. that cooperation with those mainstream media outlets was interesting. Mm. <laughs> it was sure. a, it was an interesting tactic. It ended in tears. It did. Have to say. It ended more than tears and shouting and a lot of acrimony. Yeah. I mean, Bill Keller, the editor of the New York Times, has hardly been kind to Assange since it happened. Uh, Alan Rushford just much more, I think. And the Guardian has been much more calm. Yeah, but critique. they published some critical. Oh yes, they did absolutely, uh, and from their own perspective. Yes, and also about him personally, about Assange as well. Yeah. But I mean, Bill Keller was very, which I find kind of strange because they basically milked that story dry. Mm -hmm. And then when it dried up, he basically said, well, I think we can chalk up increased surveillance. We can basically blame it on WikiLeaks. It's their fault. And mm -hmm. we're not seeing a transparency revolution. And he wasn't saying those things when it was being released. Sure, so, yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, because we're sat here in Sweden, <laughs> we have to think about the Swedish angle on this, mm -hmm. which is really very important. Of course, mm -hmm. there isn't one Swedish angle. Could you speak to that for a minute? You mean like the case here in Sweden? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, Assange is, is there's been no charges filed against him. I mean, this is this simply is wanted for questioning. I mean, we all know the stories in the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, but what's interesting here, I think, is that the way, from a Swedish perspective, the way the way it's been looked at versus the way in which Sweden has been portrayed from the, from the other side. The WikiLeaks story is not a big story here in Sweden. Assange is... Um, case and his being stuck in, in, in the embassy in London is not the big story that you might think it would be in a small country. It comes, it pops up periodically, mm -hmm. but it's interesting that, you know, you might think that it would be a big deal, but of course when, you know, when the decision comes out or something like that, there's a little bit of media attention, but in large part, it is not a, it is not a big story here. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, part of the, what is interesting from a, from a scholarly perspective is that, you know, WikiLeaks is making the argument, and Assange is making the argument, that if he comes to Sweden, he runs the risk of being extradited to the United States. That's the core of his argument. Yeah. And, of course, people, I think, roll their eyes when they hear that, when they think of Sweden. They think there's no way he would be extradited. Um, and, of course, there's, and I'm not a lawyer, so, I mean, I, I don't want to engage in, and that's one thing I don't, don't want to do, is I don't like engaging in speculation about the law. But what's interesting is that of course, he's located in the UK, which is a close ally of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but his argument about extradition, and this is yet another thing where you take the WikiLeaks case and you chop it up in all these different components here. He raises, his case raises a number of important questions about the United States government use of force uh, to impose its will over people like Manning. You know, there might be a grand jury investigation into Assange, we don't know. Um, they have extradited, Sweden has extradited people from here. Mm -hmm. uh, Egyptian nationals, 10, 12 years ago, were taken by the CIA on Swedish soil in an airplane for torture. It has happened. And these things came out as a result of that discussion. So on the one hand, people looked at the Assange case and they said, well, that could never happen here. And then it turns out that in 2001, after September 11th, it, it did actually happen. There, were, it was, there was a case of this happening. So I think from the Swedish perspective, I think, it, and then, of course, with the Snowden revelations, what came out of that was also that the Swedish government was cooperating with the NSA mm -hmm. on surveillance. And this national was a, security the agency. national security, and our, our version of the national security agency in Sweden was cooperating with them mm -hmm. under a deal signed by a social democrat, not by a conservative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, you know what? In Sweden, people were like, it was a non-story. What about the gender side to it? Yeah. The rape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, WikiLeaks is making the case. Uh, well, WikiLeaks. I think that you know, Assange and WikiLeaks are making the argument that that feminism has a sort of a major stranglehold on Swedish 
social and political life here, and then that it's a factor in the, in the case and what's going on here. And I've, I've written publicly that I think that that's just not, I think that that's disingenuous to write that, and I think it's a mistake to write that. There's lots of things you can write about about this case, about him, about the United States, about WikiLeaks's role, their function. But the gender aspect is one that comes out. But again, is I think it's understood to be a bigger issue outside of Sweden than it is here. I don't think people here hear that and necessarily think any very much about it in that way. Mm-hmm. But from the from the Assange side, it has been something that has been promoted as sort of being a part of this. That you know, uh, Swedish uh, gender politics is it means that he's being sort of uh, crucified here for something mm-hmm. that, that that didn't happen. And, I mean, I don't know what happened, but what I do know is that I think that this argument, I mean, he called it a sort of Saudi Arabia feminism. It's a famous quote. I didn't know he said that. No, he said that, and it was, a, you know, it sort of stuck for a while after he said that. And it's, um, of course, for anyone who's lived in the United States or the United Kingdom uh, and looks at gender politics in those countries, I mean, uh, personally speaking, I mean, Sweden is a progressive country in that sense but by no means perfect and not even close to being perfect mm-hmm. but in terms of things like you know gender equality in terms of pay and leave and you know work balance in the national parliament those kinds of things I mean, just look at the numbers right? yeah how many women are in the United States right. but and yeah, yeah I mean but on the other hand look at look around you on a daily basis and stuff. since we're talking about gender politics in Sweden they're famous for that but I mean Sweden is you know it is soaked with sexist imagery and you know misogyny, mm-hmm. just like any other Western European or North American country, and so the notion that this is like some kind of man hater, ball breaker country, right. it's just nonsense. It is nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is, but I mean, it, 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 you might think it's extreme if you come from a political climate where sexism is much more tolerated. Uh, it is here. It is actually, and that's the thing. I'm not trying to suggest that it's great here. It's, it's not. To- it is tolerated to a certain extent. It's just that there's legislation that there's social engineering going on in that sense to, to sort of right wrongs. And I think that personally speaking, it's a good thing. And, it, and I think that when I look at when I look at my existence in other countries, there's a definite difference. Now, let, I don't know how much time don't, we've got. Left. I got plenty got of time. A little, little longer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, because I'd love to get you on to this media reform topic <laughs> yeah. that you raised yeah. with reference to the work you're doing with. It's just a book oh, chapter. Yeah. Des Freeman yeah. and Obar Joseph and James Obar. It's a multi-edited book, and it's just that they, they just asked me if I was willing to write a chapter about it in relation to that. And I think, I mean, there's a whole media reform movement that mm-hmm. McChesney and Des Freeman have been. They're very active, especially mm-hmm. Des in Britain. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a really interesting thing about the notion of media's responsibility, and it gets mm-hmm. and, you know, people like me. In my mid forties, and you know, again, when you go back to your your days at university, we were talking about this sort of discussion about normative aspects of media and like what media should be doing, and and so there's a sort of an element there, and I don't think it's a dirty word, from personally speaking, the normative question, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the question was, you know, what does the what the role does organizations like WikiLeaks play in this discussion? Mm-hmm. And I think again, what happens is it's a residual, it's a it's a it's a byproduct. They mm-hmm. are not media reform activists, right? But their very existence raises question about media performance. Mm-hmm. So, for example, why did the U.S. media not perform during the Iraq War and prior to after nine one one? I mean, mm-hmm. their release of the inf- information exposed lies on the part of media, 
It exposed lies on the part of the U.S. government. So it raises question about this whole notion of the fourth estate. Like, you know, why, why do we need a whistleblowing organization like this to get us in? Where were the journalists? You know, how did the New York Times promote this weapons of mass destruction question? Um, why did Chelsea Manning go to WikiLeaks and not go to the New York Times, which actually she did, and they didn't answer her calls in the Washington Post, apparently. And, um, and I think there's other questions, too. WikiLeaks has been in existence for years before the big release. So I told you before, they, they released information about toxic waste dumping in the Ivory Coast, uh, climate change, never got picked up by the media. Mm -hmm. These were, I mean, and so it raises questions about corporate ownership, mm -hmm. right? So their their very their very existence, the very fact that they exist and what they do, I think from a, from a media reform perspective, should make us question the performance. And then the next step is the use of the law as a blunt instrument mm. for control. And then you see what happens to whistleblowers, and you see what happens to whistleblowers like uh, you know like Manning, who's got thirty five years in prison. Uh, I mean, Snowden stuck in Russia, but then there's plenty of other examples. You know, the Obama administration has gone after more, I think it's, I think it's the fact that it's gone after more whistleblowers under one administration than all other administrations combined. You know, Freeman, I mean, so they're very, very big on this cracking down on people releasing classified information. And that's a journalistic question. That's a media reform question. So what responsibility do we have to protect people who blow whistles? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know... The reason why WikiLeaks was works in, worked in Belgium, Iceland, and Sweden was also whistleblower legislation was more friendly here. And that's an important question. If you're talking about media reform, you can't avoid the sort of residual laws that make journalism possible, like whistleblower protection. And if you have a government that's going after people like this, uh, and, I mean, you could clearly, some of the material that Manning released showed crimes being committed, right? And if someone releases information that shows a crime, should that person then be sitting in jail for the rest of their life? And that's a media reform issue, right? They need to be, the laws need to be changed to increase protection for these people. Mm -hmm. And for the journalists who work with them. Look what happened to The Guardian. They had to smash their computers in their offices, right? Glenn Greenwald's partner gets stopped at Heathrow Airport. David Miranda harassed, right? I mean, these are all questions. These are all related either directly or indirectly to the, to the function of journalism. Mm -hmm. What about the question of what we've actually learned from this. Mm. I mean, you've mentioned the very spectacular video yes. that uh, I used in class in the United mm. States when it came out. Mm -hmm. As you say, the bourgeois media basically ignored yeah. it pretty much. Yeah. Students just didn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, I simply couldn't get anybody yeah. to believe that this would go on. Yeah. Even though for you and me, seeing this is shocking at one level. At another level, eh. It's, it's no not surprise. shocking at all. We know that's what they do. Sure. But actually, to see it is another matter. Sure. But for the skeptical student, or shall we say the credulous student, yes. no, it's a fiction. Or it's an aberration. Wouldn't do that. Or it's bad apples. Yes. And of course, we're talking about at a place like the University of California, Riverside, where I used to teach, as you know, people, many of whom are in the military, mm -hmm. who are family members in the military, mm -hmm. and their view is, without putting it in these terms, we're working class, people of color, this is our one route out of yeah. fucking hell. Yes. And we love our country, and yes. this is part of showing that we are Americans. Mm -hmm. And WTF, dude. Mm -hmm. You know, these people are trying to stay alive, and there are people out there trying to kill them. Yeah. Yep. So on and so forth. Kill the bad guys. Very powerful position, and part of the populist loathing of Assange mm -hmm. in the United States, which is empirically present. Yeah. Which is not just about the 
bad rap the bourgeois media give him. It's mm -hmm. also that there is a thing called nationalism that these people don't think about, that mm -hmm. the left doesn't care to engage yeah. very often yeah. in a serious way. So I wondered about whether you could say something about the value of what's disclosed yeah. in terms of trying to get people, I'm not just thinking about the United States, but mm -hmm. obviously it's the big bad yeah. bogle, mm -hmm. the, the big bad ogre in, mm -hmm. in WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. What hope is there for trying to get people to understand the damage of US nationalism? And can WikiLeaks contribute at all to that? Well, WikiLeaks or, or any other yeah. leak with yeah, Snowden. It, it, and it, I think it doesn't that, have to be their responsibility. Like, 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 let's take the NSA leaks as a very good example, the Snowden material, right? Yeah. One of the arguments that I initially made about WikiLeaks, which is not a particularly insightful argument, it's a pretty basic one, is that I, th I think that in a very small way, what WikiLeaks did was it shifted relationships. Like the New York Times example about them going to the New York Times and saying, can you ask WikiLeaks? That slightly shifted the relationship between politicians and newspapers when there was a third actor, a third party involved that was outside. And another thing that shifted was the relationship between citizens and the state. I do think if there's one thing you can say, it, Snowden in particular, the NSA revelations, made people think a little harder about what their government does. And of course the reaction in the United States was, if you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. It's the classic sort of argument, which is an unbelievable argument for an American to make if you think about American mythology, right? The very notion that, and it's a sort of Stalinist thing, basically, that argument, you know. If, if you're a good party member, then I mean, you've you got nothing to worry about. And it's basically the argument that's being made in the United States. I would say if I, I and, this, and I'm not claiming in any way to have my finger on the pulse of anything, but I, I did, you do see a slightly different popular discussion about the role of the state in surveillance, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you see a slightly more developed argument about the role of large corporations in the tech industry cooperating with. Mm -hmm. And I think that has filtered down into beyond just academic papers, into newspapers mm -hmm. and into television. Mm -hmm. But it disappeared fairly quickly. When, when you get your first Ebola case, nobody gives a shit anymore about but then the other problem here, it seems to me, is that the what, that anti-statism in the United States yeah. is not hard to unearth. No, because it's so powerful yeah. in any way. Yeah, the thing that's hard to disinter is the profundity of nationalism. Yeah, the really destructive, vicious, yes, imperialistic nationalism. Yes, which they manage in their mad way. And I'm a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. too, yes. so you know I'm not saying that I'm. So am I. Yes. No, I know you are. Well, you are many things. Yes. <laughs> but the thing that I find very difficult to deal with is that people think the military is not the state. Yes. They often think the police are not the state. Yeah. They sometimes think educators are not the state. The right. state is just government. Which, yes. And they think the courts are the, the state. The death penalty has got nothing to do with the state. Right. All of this, I mean, really nutty, nutso ideas. Right. They think that they think that the state is not involved in propping up industry, ho, ho, ho. I mean, right. the, the level of madness about this topic is astonishing, yeah. right? So the question is, how can we get anybody to realize that their nationalism and their anti-statism are contradictory and get them to see that the government is probably more involved in daily life in the US, courtesy of the military, mm -hmm. than any other government in world history, apart from totalitarian regimes? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, guess what? The military is everywhere in the United States, as you know. It's yes. around every bloody corner. Yes. 
we'll look at apart from all these other instances. Yeah, and we'll look at look like at Ferguson. I mean, look at look at yeah. the militarization of local police in the United States, supplied with weapons from excess U.S. military hardware, being right. sold at a discount. It's right. unbelievable. Yeah. And I mean, I remember you know the Los Angeles school district just gave the green light to the purchase of semi-automatic weapons from the U.S. military <laughs> and a grenade launcher. Um, and well, remember, I'm, I'm if, passing, your, if your daughter, if your yeah. daughter were in school yeah. there as yeah. opposed to here, yeah. or entering school there as opposed to here, yeah. as I think she is about to yeah. do, you'd be told in LA that they would be ready for lockdowns, yeah. which yeah. would mean, for those outside the United States listening, that your daughter would be stuck in there for potentially 24 hours yes. after school because yes. they thought there was someone with a bomb or a gun, or there yes. was somebody with a bomb yes. or a gun. Yes. And this that is not irregular. Yes. Well, what you're talking—I mean, what you're—we're going back in time too. What you're talking about also is the same kind of—it's the same kind of question that you have when you have arguments about Gramsci and hegemony, basically, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about people who are aware of their repression mm-hmm. but can't see the connection between these things. And when you talk to them about it, you get that look on—you know—that you're a nutcase, you're a conspiracy theorist. But the, of course, the relationship between nationalism and the state has been successfully divorced in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I am a pessimist in that way. I mm-hmm. see no change in that happening mm-hmm. until there's economic collapse. Mm-hmm. I mean I hate to, I mean I hate to say it like this, but I mean until there's really and, and you take Ferguson as a very good example of this, right? It is in your face mm-hmm. the relationship between the state down at the local level, mm-hmm. right? And people still will say, and for example, I just posted a I just posted something on Twitter. It's a picture of a Humvee in front of Ferguson's Walmart which was closed, mm. right? And it, it's basically it's basically protecting Walmart. And I said, this is the perfect picture for America 2014 because it encapsulates everything. It has to do with what happened in Ferguson. It has to do with the military. It has to do with corporate influence. Mm. And it's got 2,000 retweets already in wow. 12 hours, right? People understand, and they're mostly American, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. And, this is, and when, I, when I see those things, I mean, I'm not saying that Twitter is representative of anything, but what I mean is there's a lot of people in America who understand this relationship, I think. But they're in a minority. America's a big country. No, there are millions of people who think about this the same way you and I. But there's 300 million people in America. There are, there, are there are 290 yeah. million yes. more. Don't and think. so your question is, what do we do about it? And I think when you see examples that are so egregious, but yet you still can't have a reasoned discussion about it, then you have to ask the question, I mean, this, is, this isn't just the media, right? This, mm-hmm. is, this is, goes way beyond that question of, like, you know, acculturation has to do, it has to do with the church, it has to do with museums, it has to do with uh, family structure, it has to do with no, no maternal and paternal leave. I mean, all these things are sort of melded into this mm-hmm. unbelievable. And, and exactly what you're saying, I have arguments about the death penalty with people who say, down with state power, you know, no, no state power. We should basically total libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's abolish the death penalty because what, what else is there? What, what bigger exercise of state power is there than killing a citizen? What are you talking about? They're bad people. And you say, mm-hmm. yeah, but you hate the state. Well, don't, I don't, you know, no, but that's not what I mean. You know, or abortion, right? Um, and I'm a pessimist in that way. And I, and I think in that sense, those relationships that I talked about, that groups like maybe the Snowden material, that doesn't impact that, that question of nationalism. Well, but, but here is also the other question. The side to these extremely formally uneducated people who are doing a lot of this, like mm-hmm. Snowden and Assange, mm-hmm. who basically didn't know social or cultural theory for hitting yeah. the head, right? Or any other formal knowledge, mm-hmm. because they abjure it, they claim not to need it. Mm-hmm. 
there are two things about both of them. They claim to be libertarian, well, particularly Assange claims mm -hmm. to be libertarian, but they're very state dependent. Mm -hmm. And of course, Snowden claims to be a nationalist mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So, where does the dividing line fall between a, a libertarian and a statist in these cases? How truly libertarian are these entities? Because they seem to me constantly to seek state protection. All the time, they claim, we want the law to save us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that there's no better example of, you know, the death of the nation state argument that you and I read about in the 90s was a huge part of our discipline in the field. We had this discussion, like states are over, it's transnational corporations, currency will soon disappear. It's like, and I remember, you know, David, Mor David Morley was, I remember another scholar was giving a talk in the United States and he was going to come home and then the volcano erupted, you know, in, in Iceland and he couldn't get his flight back home. And his talk was about the importance of geography, right? And it was like, it was like, he said like, you know, is there a better example of all the, t all this talk about flow of information, flow of people, all it takes is for one volcano to blow and the world stops, right? So how much place matters and geography matters. And WikiLeaks is the quintessential example of why laws and nation states still matter. Both their use of the law, because they're pitched as being this sort of renegade, beyond the law, global, free-flowing cloud of information. Mm. But they are consistently using national laws for protection. Mm. Whether you agree or disagree with that is a different issue. But I think they are the ultimate example of state power in that way. And so to argue that it's sort of like this flow... Their, their, their repression or their repression of the people who supply the information is state power. They're exposing U.S. military activity, war, state power. They seek refuge in Sweden, Iceland, Belgium, state laws, right? And they seek court injunctions and they seek court action. And proprietary ownership. Yeah, I mean, so... Subject to Yeah, so actually, they're, 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 I mean, they're the best example. So when I hear people talk about the first, you know, stateless news organization... I'm like, this is like, that's like completely wrong. That's that's like the most that's the most incorrect analysis of these groups that you can have. Because the more the more they're under the thumb, the more they're subject to repression by the state. The more, of course, out of out of survival instinct, you will seek protection under the law. What what free float? What does that mean? Free floating? Who's protecting you there? You need protection, and if that means going to X country or Y country, you go there. Because that's the world that we live in. We live in a world of laws, no matter how, what your political position and is. And territories. Yeah, and territorialization and re-territorialization. Soil. Yeah. Soil. Forget the fucking cloud. I mean, you yeah. need to be somewhere. Because <laughs> when your life isn't... Well, tell, tell Bradley Manning about free flow of information, or Chelsea Manning. Mm. Sitting in a, poli in a cell, in, under solitary confinement for two years. How, how did that... You know, that, that, that's material. That's mm. power. Now, I know you've got some paternal, parental responsibility yeah, coming up very yeah, soon. Yeah. I want to thank you for uh, leaping into the pod sure. and sharing so generously of your sure. time and your ideas. We barely scratched the surface, particularly of your earlier work, so I'd love to find time soon, sure. wherever we may meet up next, for another podcast, if you'd do that. Absolutely. Great. Thank Cheers. you.